It's like once the body knows that what it says will be received, then there's incentive for the body to start asking for what it wants. Welcome back to another episode. I am very happy to have Rahi Chun with me. He is the creator of Somatic Sexual Wholeness, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and a pretty skilled somatic therapist. And today we are going to be talking about sexual healing and specifically healing from sexual trauma. So Um, I've noticed in my work, I originally started out working with survivors of sexual abuse many years ago in New York City. And I would say probably a quarter to a third of our clients that we work with who are men are survivors of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse themselves, unwanted uh, sexual experiences, sometimes very young, sometimes teenagers. We'll talk about that. Um, And a lot of their partners. So a lot of men that we work with are survivors themselves or are in partnership past or present with survivors of sexual abuse. And I'd say most of them are untreated, right? There's a lot of unprocessed trauma. And um, I'm really excited about this episode because I want to just normalize this, that this Mm. is a very normal human experience many people share And yet it feels like there's a lot of stigma and just heaviness around it. And I kind of want to normalize it and yeah, highlight some, some healing practices that you have found to be effective because trauma can be processed. It doesn't have to be a life sentence that, you know, I'm broken and this is never going to work for me. It's really, our bodies and minds are quite resilient. And I'd love to hear more about your experience in terms of working with folks with this as part of their background. Um, cause you've been doing it for quite a long time and I just have so many questions. So to mm. start out, I would love to hear how you got into this work and what your experience has been. Sure. Sure. Thank you for having me on Melanie. Um, and I really, really love how you're underscoring the importance of normalizing these conversations. I really, really feel, I mean, I think it's an unspoken epidemic and it's the kind of thing where like if you're at any random event and you asked for a raise of a show of hands who's been either traumatized or experienced a, a boundary violation, nearly all hands would go up. And yet, you know, the culture, the ex- the lack of acceptance, a real um adult and a healing conversation to take place. So I'm really, really glad that your intention is to normalize that. Sure. So in answer to your question, um, how I got into this, I mean, honestly, I think it was um, coming out of my mom's womb with severely crooked legs. Um, she was a nurse. This was in New York City. So rather than do surgery on my infant knees as the doctors wanted, uh, being a nurse, she just intuitively lotioned and massaged my legs until they grew out straight, which took about three years. So from pretty much out of the womb, I was always very tactile and very um, 
I mean, it was like my first language. Touch was my first language. And so I was very into like massaging my parents as a kid growing up. And then cut to in college, I was fascinated with different forms of meditation. I lived in Japan my junior year and um, lived in a monastery in, in Thailand. And so it was this combination of intentional touch with unconditional presence that seemed to have a healing effect um, in, in my girlfriend at the time. And I just wanted to learn everything I could about it. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, being very tactile, I was very much in my body and, you know, we are as human beings, we're sexual beings. And so, um, when I say that, I mean, you know, I feel like sex has become so sensationalized in our culture and it's just so normal. And so for me to explore my sexuality was very normal and touch. And so over the years, I, I, um, you know, was fascinated with different Taoist uh, principles and ways of cir consciously circulating sexual energy. I was fascinated with different tantric approaches to sexual healing. Um, eventually, I became certified as a, a somatic sex educator and sexological body worker. Uh, I got a master's in psychology. And then I just became fascinated with trauma and the nervous system. So that's really how it evolved. And it really evolved very organically. And um yeah, there, there's so much to cover because, you know, there's so many different aspects of trauma and different ways that it affects our body and the tissues and fascia of our body and how that in turn informs our behavior uh, when it comes to sexual intimacy. Yeah, there's a phrase I really loved that you said, intentional touch with unconditional presence. Mm. And I really, you know, from from reading about your work, that feels very that feels like what you do. <laughs> mm. It feels very mm -hmm. sort of sacred and held. And um, I, I, I really want to hear about your perspective on this because I do think that um, I think it's a really scary thing to face. I think for a lot of folks, um, sexual trauma, unwanted touch, things that happened when we were young, especially when we were young, that it's, it can feel very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed, especially for some of the men I work with, when their woman has sexual trauma in her past, it's often never been addressed and it is affecting their sex life in, at the present moment. And there's a, a sense of, um, she just really doesn't want to go there. She just really doesn't want to face it. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, when people come to work with you, what are they expecting? Because I, I would imagine being really scared. Like, I don't know what this is going to be like and mm -hmm. being afraid of, yeah, my boundaries being violated again. Like how mm -hmm. do you handle even just that someone reaching out, you know, because by the time they're reaching out they're they've at least gotten to the point where they're, they've decided to address it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like, I'm curious how you handle the first sort of the first session or the first communications around mm -hmm. it. Because they're like, oh, God, is he going to touch? You know, is he going to touch me? Right. Yeah. I would have part of it. It's just a lot of there's a lot locked up there. So how do you how do you navigate that? Sure. Part? Yeah. Yeah. These are really that's a really, really great question. And it's really I mean, it really speaks to 
how integral the safety is to the process. So essentially, you're right, Melanie. Um, it's ex- it's extremely vulnerable for anyone who has been sexually abused to start wanting to address that and to feel safe and trusting to address that, uh, and then reaching out to practitioner who they've who they don't know, you know, and so. Um, the reason it is so vulnerable is, you know, I mean, as children, um, we are so innocent and we are so vulnerable. We are in the vulnerable. I mean, we are in the hands of our caretakers and something happened that, uh, you know, we were not protected. And so a breach of boundaries happened, whether that was within the family, within the neighborhood of, of, you know, an extended family member or, you know, whoever it was like, there was a sense of, oh my gosh, I can't trust that I can be safe. So that is the embodied memory, the cellular memory with which a client will come to a session. And so in answer to your question, um, you know, the very first thing I do is, you know, in the consultation call, um, you know, they get a sense that I'm really interested in them. And my job is to relate to the age at which that violation occurred. So if a client is coming and they were, let's say, violated age at age three, it's that three-year-old's trust that's my job to make feel safe. You know, or if if they if they were raped at 15, then it's that 15-year-old's trust. Like I don't I don't deserve to work with them until I until their body and more specifically, their nervous system knows that they can be safe with me. So, you know, for me, that's really conveying that that is my intention. And this is before they come in person. Um, That's in the first conversation. And then I do an intake that's done face to face. So it's either Skype or FaceTime. And we are combing through um, all of the influences and experiences that has affected their current state of embodiment. So most of it is exploring their developmental years, because I find that with most clients, that's where the roots or the seeds um, begin. Um, and so, you know, there's uh, usually during the intake, they will get a sense, um, both of my experience, how safe it is to share things with me, and how actually freeing and releasing it is for them to be able to share these things um, and not be judged, but, but actually um, with someone who understands the circumstances and the effects of these kinds of experiences. So this is all done before they come in person. And then when they come in person, depending on the age at which they were violated, you know, I'll do different things. For example, if it's a woman who was violated, I usually sit, um, you know, six to eight feet across from them. And then at some point I will ask them to tune into their body and notice if they feel safer with me moving to the floor. In most cases, something in their body feels safer. Then I will ask them to feel into their body and see where their body wants to place me. So in the very beginning from the first session, we're establishing that it's their body that is in charge of where I'm being placed and the pace at which the session is unfolding. So as early and as 
empowering as possible. Like everything I do is to let the client's body and their nervous system know that they're actually in charge of everything that happens. So it's not me imposing some kind of structure onto the client. It's really the client feeling safe enough to start listening to, to what it is they want, the pace. And sometimes physical touch doesn't come into a session until the third or fourth session. And then for other people, it can come in the first session. But it really, again, it depends on the client's sense of safety and trust. Yeah, I actually noticed myself getting emotional. I'm not a sexual abuse survivor myself, but I noticed myself getting emotional when you were talking about that um, act of just asking, where do you want, where does your body mind want me to be in the room? Mm. There's such a generosity of spirit there. And I think that's one of the fundamental misunderstandings about something like sexual abuse, which is I think there's a perception that it's about sex and yes, there's an element that's about sex, but a lot of it is about power and Mm -hmm. and a feeling of loss of control, a feeling of loss of power, a feeling of loss of autonomy, at least from what I've discussed with friends of mine, you know, the people in my life, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of people. And it really Mm -hmm. like in that act, you know, you're offering that person's body mind, the gift of you are in charge here Mm -hmm. that I will go where you say in this Mm -hmm. room, I will do what you say in this space. And just that I would imagine is, is transformative for some, for some people. And I'm wondering how is that for clients just in that experience? Mm -hmm. What for them? Sure. Sure. It, it is very, uh, uh, transformative because, you know, as adults, we're so used to kind of behaving in a, in a kind of proper etiquette as adults. Um, and in doing so, a lot of times we will, uh, overrun or supersede what the body really wants. So, you know, I mean, uh, in most instances, um, well, I'll give you two examples. One, you know, what I love about the intake process, which is done via Skype or FaceTime before we meet in person, you know, this is an example because it's very recent. Like I had a recent client and in her intake, like, you know, we ex- it came up that she was violated by a, a male pediatrician when she was eight and then another doctor when she was a teenager and then like in her early 20s. So here she is. I mean, it blows me away her courage to to seek out yet another male practitioner for healing. But just me mentioning that, you know, I said, you know, I'm just noticing that there is a pattern here of having your trust and your body violated by male authority figures um, who are supposed to you know, be, be holding your, your health and care. And just, just naming that she kind of burst out emotionally because she was holding on to, I mean, I'm imagining she was holding on to that, uh, and wondering, okay, am I going to be disappointed again? Because again, the body remembers all these memories. Um, so then when she came in person, it was exactly that. I mean, I first start out in the chair, which is pretty level. And then I asked the client, can you just take a moment and tune into your body and notice I'm going to move 
And notice if this feels better or worse in your body, just very simply, better or worse. And when I moved to the floor, just kind of, you know, she went from her legs crossed and her arms crossed to kind of like more relaxed. And then she did, she said, I don't know why I feel better, but I feel more comfortable. And then that's when I would point out, you know, I'm physically bigger than you. There's a history. So that cognitively she understands how her physiological responses, um, uh, are behaving. Um, and I find that, you know, it goes to what you said earlier, Melanie, like I find that the vast majority of my clients have had their physical boundaries violated. And so in a session setting, when I am, you know, seen or projected as the authority figure, it, it just relieves their whole system to have me sitting on the floor or, you know, sometimes I'll ask them, where does your body really want me to sit? And they'll put me in the corner of the room. I had one client who put me outside of the room and, and closed and had me close the door. So I was on the other side uh, of a closed door. And then after about five minutes, it just seemed so ridiculous to her that she asked me to come back in the room, even though we were carrying on that conversation. But it's instances like this that prove to the three-year-old inner child or the 15-year-old that, oh, wow, I'm, I really am in charge. Like, I mean, he, he, I can tell him to do anything and my body really can be safe here. And that's what we need to restore. I mean, that's really the job of somatic practitioners that, you know, to let the body know, feel its sovereignty and its sense of autonomy once again. I love that word autonomy and the, um, the story of the woman who had you sit outside the door. I actually think that's a really important story because this again goes to busting a few myths, I think about something like somatic therapy with a trauma informed someone like you, that's a sexological body worker, you're trauma informed. It's not like you start by touching someone's vulva, right? right. I think there's a perception that because you're, trauma informed or that you have a, you know, you work with sexuality. We're so trained in our sort of porn centered culture. Mm. Oh my God, that's immediately going to mean this when really that story matters. The story you just told is a, is a huge big deal because mm. that woman and, and what you keep pointing out and I want to slow down for people. Is you're not asking their mind. You're asking their body. You're saying yes. your body and see where your body where does your body want me in the room? And that's a really different question than where do you want me in the room? Mm -hmm. Because I would argue that most of us are disconnected from our bodies most of the time. And, and in my experience, sexual abuse survivors, even more, right? There's like a, a range, right? So if you have someone and your explicit invitation is where does your body want me in the space? Mm. And they check in with their body and they're like, oh yeah, other side of the door, lock the door. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like totally really important thing that they were able to actually express that and then to have it happen. And for you not to take it personally as the practitioner, right. mm -hmm. for you not to say, uh, okay, that's kind of weird for you to say, you got it. Whatever your body feels comfortable with, we are going to do. And then you get on the other side of that door and you're not in a hurry. Mm -hmm. trying to get back in. You're not um, forcing anything. You're allowing that space unfold. That's what feels really important about that story is that 
And it sounds like you two kept talking, right? You had mm-hmm. a conversation, right? Yeah. Another and she was the one who said, okay, I think you can come back in the room now. But what a gift, like you said, for that part of her, which I, I want to go back to and hear here. I'd love for you to share a bit about this because there's something really important you said around the age that the violation took place. There's a, there's a consciousness that is that age in the person. And I think that's something that can be misunderstood. Obviously you're, you're, you know, you're coming as a 47 year old adult, but there's a part of you that's still three or five or seven or nine or 13 or 15 or however old you were. Can you break that down a little bit in terms of trauma and the body and how that works? Sure. Sure. Um, so yeah, Melanie, everything you said is spot on. And just to underscore that, you know, the job is really a restoration of trust for a trust within the body of not only its experiences, but of the body owner as well. Um, and so, yes, giving voice to what the body really wants. It really, I mean, I, I, I think somatic sex educators, our jobs, it, primarily it's to restore the trust and sense of, yeah, autonomy and safety within the body. Um, so going to your question, so, yeah, essentially, like, I'm really fascinated with the nervous system because it really informs so much of our experiences. And so, you know, to answer your question, if a three-year-old, like, you know, let's say I have a client who's in their 40s, but when they were three or five or 15, there was a severe traumatic violation. Well, their nervous system is going to go into a free state if it's a severe if it's a sev- severe trauma the nervous system's job is to make sure that the body survives so to survive a particular traumatic experience um it'll go into freeze so it doesn't feel overwhelming sensations that's too overwhelming for a 3-year-old child to feel um so that nervous system And that memory is going to stay within that child's three-year-old reality, even though they're now in their teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. And whenever that body's nervous system is reminded of that three-year-old trauma, which, and it could be something as crazy as, you know, maybe to survive that let's say it was physical or sexual abuse at three, maybe the three-year-old child just fixated on the elephant wallpaper. But now they're in their 40s, they're at their partner's house, they're in the bedroom, and there's an image of an elephant. Their three-year-old is going to go into, into either freeze or panic because it's going to remember that experience. And this is how you know, this is how trauma gets stored in the body. And because it gets stored in the body, in the nervous system and in the cellular memories of the tissue and fascia, it really needs to be released and resolved from the body. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, a kind of a classic example is, you know, I think, uh, you know, when we see kind of, you know, 
Vietnam or now Iraq veterans, they come back and a, a car alarm goes off, like something in their system thinks it's a bomb going off and they'll hit the floor. Well, that's that's trauma in the nervous system. So we have, you know, those memories stored within our cellular memory and our nervous system when it comes to sexual violation, physical trauma, um, boundary violations as well. Absolutely. And I, I, I just want to highlight this. I've been reading, there's a book called what happened to you Mm. would recommend and um, it's Oprah and a trauma informed therapist or actually I think he might be a neurobiologist. He deals a lot with the brain, but one thing I just wanted to sort of echo there is for example, I've worked with a lot of clients where a certain type of lighting will activate their nervous system, uh, a certain scent, a certain scent, maybe vanilla, something like that. And their, their brain won't be able to make sense of it. Their body is freaking out mm. and they don't understand what's going on. There's not a logical, this isn't mind-based. I guess I just wanted to echo that, that there's, mm-hmm. there's trauma is a very physical, visceral body-based thing. And, and that's why talk therapy is not that effective in terms of specifically trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've seen, you know, a lot of sort of, um, especially post-traumatic stress that it, it doesn't actually address the trauma. Mm-hmm. And sometimes talking about the trauma doesn't address the trauma. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, um, as we sort of transition into, you know, what works, right. What mm-hmm. does actually help, uh, process this and maybe unwind a lot of tension in the body that's being held. Mm-hmm. What what works in terms of this? Because we kind of know talking about it doesn't work, but it feels like culturally when people talk about therapy, many times they're still talking about talk therapy. So what, what mm-hmm. else works that's out there that is effective mm-hmm. in terms of addressing it? Sure. So I'll give you a range of different somatic body-based therapies that I have found to be to be very effective. So there are somatic modalities that address essentially releasing trauma from the nervous system. So there's one modality called TRE that stands for trauma release exercises. There's another modality called somatic experiencing, which is kind of a blend of psychotherapy, but it's body-based. Now, both of these modalities were designed to release what's considered event or shock trauma from the body. So that would be an event like an accident or a violation. Um, some, you know, surgery is considered shock trauma. And that's, that, that's distinguished from what's considered developmental or relational trauma. So developmental trauma would not necessarily be an event, but maybe there was a rage-aholic parent in your home. So it never felt safe. And as a result, there were unconscious guarding patterns that your musculature starts to develop unconsciously because it doesn't want to be on the receiving end of that rage. Um, And then there's relational trauma, which is, you know, kind of a subset, which is like, okay, so I live in a, in a household where it's safe. My parents are wonderful people. They're providers, but they're not emotionally attuned to me. So every day I'm coming home from school, they turn on the TV and my emotions, like I'm not feeling seen or felt. So, you know, there are these, so, so there's shock trauma, developmental and relational. TRE um, 
is seven simple exercises that elicit what's called the organic tremor mechanism in the body to organically release trauma and anxiety that's stored in the, in the nervous system as a result of that shock or event trauma. Um, somatic experiencing is, as I said, a combination of psychotherapy, but it's body-based also to release shock trauma. I like using a modality that's called neuroaffective touch, which addresses the chronic guarding patterns in the body that often holds stored or unprocessed emotions from our needs not being met as children. Um, and oftentimes those guarding patterns tend to be around the heart because as children, if we're not feeling seen or met, then we'll start to protect our heart center essentially because we don't want to be hurt again and again. Um, so those are some modalities. There, there are many, many uh, somatic touch-based modalities, but those are three very common ones and, and three that I have found to be very effective. Um, and then if you want to move into somatic therapies that actually release, um, uh, I would say, start to recondition in, uh, reflexive body responses, then you know, I, I do something called full body active consent, which is um, making sure the body gives voice to what it wants and starts to receive exactly and only what it wants to receive in regards to touch. So a lot of us who've been violated as children will respond in what's called a fawning response, which means we'll just kind of go with whatever is presented. And in sexual intimacy, this happens all the time from when we're teenagers because we want to be accepted. A lot of times there's alcohol involved or peer pressure when it comes to our, you know, kind of introductory sexual experiences. And there's no sex ed in this, in this country. And so, you know, not only do we not know how to voice what we want, we don't know how to identify what our body likes or doesn't like. So, you know, full body active consent is a way to for the body to learn what it likes, identify it, give voice to it, and then receive it. And that can start retraining or reconditioning the body to, it's like once the body knows that what it says will be received, then there's incentive for the body to start asking for what it wants. If I grew up and my parents were not attuned to my emotional needs and um, you know, my first lovers uh, kind of did what they wanted, then there's, I haven't learned how important it is to identify and ask for what I want. So I find that to be really, really important. And then in sexological body work, there are processes called genital mapping and in genital de-armoring, it's actually releasing trauma that's stored in the genitalia. So there are many, many levels of like how somatic-based modalities can release trauma from the body. Yeah, there's something I wanted to uh, go back to, which is, you know, there's a lot of different constellations mm -hmm. of, of sexual trauma. And I just want to kind of name a few that I've seen from people I've worked with. So, for example, one someone I know was molested when she was very young, like three by a babysitter. Someone else uh, was molested when she was five by um, a teacher at school, like a, like a, not a, um, like a physical therapist teacher, like a PE mm. teacher at a 
thing. Um, I worked with a lot of boys and men, um, mostly men really that, um, were molested at school by older boys or even concurrent age. Um, so, uh, I was working with the Orthodox Jewish population. So mostly in yeshivas, this would be a 13 year old boy, uh, with a 17 year old boy, but I, I'm the person people tell, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of people, people tell me. And so I've got lots of guy friends where it was a family friend when he was 10 and a family friend, meaning the, the guy was like 50 years old, friends with the dad mm-hmm. came over and it happened in the basement. Doesn't even need to take very long. Um, I just want to kind of name some really yes. with girls. I've heard many, many stepfather, stepbrother, uh, cousin, a lot of, um, in the Hasidic community, big families. And there's a lot of cultures where, you know, big families, lots of cousins, lots of events where there's, you know, lots of kids that are unsupervised, et cetera. Um, and yeah, lots of cousin, I heard lots of cousin stories. Mm-hmm. And then what I want to explain again is to your point repeatedly, especially with girls, I heard this less from men, but especially with girls, that experience was then repeated. So it happened at eight with a family friend, uh, one of someone in the family system orbit. Mm-hmm. And then she was sexually assaulted when she was 19. And then it happened again when she was 25. And there, it, it was some statistic I read that was you're 70% more likely to experience adult sexual trauma if you are a child sexual survivor, sexual abuse survivor who hasn't gotten treated yet. And I really mm-hmm. want to emphasize that because again, this is not a life sentence. This doesn't mean this is a forever experience. This is, there's something about the nervous system that's, that is, repeating trauma, this, this seems very common until it's handled, until it's dealt with, until it's processed through the body. And, um, and then the last category I would say is family. So incest, tons of stories, uh, grandparents, uncles, um, the, and I'm, and I'm talking about uncles molesting boys as well as girls. When I'm, Mm -hmm. there's a big, um, misunderstanding or focus on girls and women in this conversation. And yes, absolutely. The numbers do seem to be much higher for girls and women. And I want to include boys and men in this conversation because it's so common. It's, this is, if this has happened to you, I just want to normalize it. I, so Mm -hmm. many, so many people I know, friends, family members of my clients. I mean, everybody, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, family system, brothers, stepbrothers, stepfathers, fathers. Um, I've heard fewer with mothers, more in the sexual abuse conferences I attended. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just wanted to name a few of those constellations to really mm-hmm. form the conversation a lot you know, at school, things like that. Um, and so if we sort of slow that down and we say, let's you know, take a 12-year-old boy that was molested at school by an older, an older boy, an older peer. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you know, in terms of treating that, and let's say that this happened, I don't know, a couple of times, not mm. that many times. It wasn't a hugely chronic thing, but let's say it happened three or four times. How is that going to affect mm. that boy in his in his intimacy mm. life? Mm-hmm. grow up and then how long mm-hmm. in your experience would it take that boy to to get it treated mm-hmm. 
is doing somatic therapy that's working with the body. I just want to give people a sense of a timeline and I mm-hmm. know it's different, but just as an example. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great example. And those are really, you're right. They're very, very common. I, you know, I mean, as far as, I mean, you know, like the statistics are so, so, so underreported as it is. And I think amongst boys and men, they're even exponentially more underreported. I mean, I, I chuckle there because I just think it's such a ridiculously um, like we, we actually we essentially have no facts. You know, we can't trust the facts that are out there because we know how underreported, you know, these numbers are. So going back to your example, Melanie, it's like. So let's say a 12-year-old. So a 12-year-old is going to start to be very, very um, uh, aware of their body changing, uh, as well as, you know, as we enter our teen years, we really really crave acceptance from our peer group, uh, as well as like, you know, we're individuating essentially out of the family. So, you know, someone who's 12 is going to experience that kind of violation um, very sensitively. I mean, I'm generalizing, of course, but that that's a sensitive age, you know, 12 going into teens. So essentially, um, children and I think even teens, we tend to blame ourselves when something bad happens. I mean, we do as adults when it comes to sexual violation anyway. Um, and so a 12-year-old who's violated by an older you know, let's say some, you know, like an an older young boy at a, you know, like a 14 or 15 year old, um, you know, is, is going to probably uh, feel ashamed, may blame himself, in which case, what happens a lot, Melanie, is whatever gender, is there starts to be a disconnect between them and their relationship to their genitalia. So it's almost like, you know, one, the shock of it, you know, um, creates numbness or armoring. And then because if a 12-year-old, you know, if any child is is experiencing violation, they don't want to feel the pain or the shame of it. So they start to numb the area. So as he gets older... Uh, you know, maybe eventually he'll, you know, get into relationships where he's having sex, but he may not be feeling very much, you know, because that area is cut off or it's numb or he doesn't have an intimate relationship with his own genitalia. So, you know, maybe he does not self-pleasure because that reminds him of that abuse. Um, and so consequently, he doesn't really know what gives him pleasure. Um and so when it comes to having sex, he's just kind of, you know, blindly fucking, quote unquote, not not intimate at all. And, you know, if he if 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 that person who's been violated isn't intimately connected with their genitalia, it's going to be very hard to um, connect intimately with a with a partner because they're cut off from their own sexuality. Um you know, I mean, I, it, you know, I think it's very, very common. I mean, if, if you, if you recognize your own behavior and what I'm sharing, please don't blame yourself. Something happened to you. And to your point, Melanie, like we're, we're very Pavlovian as far as what can be rewired and reconditioned, you know? And so, um, 
Yeah. And so, you know, it is a matter of, you know, addressing the, 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 um, the repressed emotions around that event and then starting to resensitize areas of the body or genitalia that may have been numb or cut off. Um, and then, you know, if you're in a relationship, you can, I mean, it can be an incredibly intimate, uh, uh, just deepening of, 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 of partnership and trust and intimacy with your partner. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I've noticed in terms of my work with men is there's also, I think sometimes an avoidance of, uh, sexual intimacy or a pushing away of a, a relationship that might go towards sexual intimacy mm. or sexual play, because it does feel like the body is, is defending itself. Like that wasn't, mm-hmm. safe. this isn't, you know, something doesn't feel safe. And I know that if we keep going on dates, this could be something that could happen. So I'm going to shut that down. Like, I'm just not going to allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've witnessed some sabotage essentially Mm -hmm. in terms of, um, sexual play, sexual connection. And the other piece is, I think that, um, it can be really confusing around sexual orientation because if you have a formative experience, you know, say 12, again, there's, it, there's a lot tied up in that one experience and you might not find boys or men attractive. Mm. Um, maybe that changes with that experience. And I guess what I kind of want to say is everything is okay. <laughs> it's okay if you're, you don't know where your orientation is, or if, you know, attraction to boys or men is, it does become part of your life. It's not bad. It doesn't necessarily have to be bad. Uh, I do encourage the processing of the trauma because the trauma is getting in the way of at least what I've seen in my clients is getting in the way of, of what they want. They want a healthy sexual relationship. They want to be able to date with ease. They want to be, they want to feel present in their bodies. They want, they want their erection, right? Cause we're, this is, there's stuff tied in here around mm-hmm. ejaculation, erection, um, just, er- I, I don't like the term erectile dysfunction, but just, mm-hmm penis arousal, all of that, you know, it's, it's all, it's all in here because to your point, you know, if you're numb or you're not really able to connect to that part of your body, it's really hard to experience pleasure. It's also really hard to attune to a partner, whether Mm -hmm. that's a male bodied person or a female bodied person, because really good sex is about connection. So if you're associated from your body in the experience, it's basically impossible to then attune to the, to your partner because you're not exactly your body. So to be in your body and feel into the other person's body, mm-hmm. not really on the table. So again, back to, um, recovery and what's effective. I'm curious, um, can you yet yeah, touch a little bit into just how long would it take? Let's say this mm-hmm. man, right. Who's now like, okay, yes, this thing happened when I was younger. I can mm-hmm. see how there's a connection. I want to, I want to process this. I want to get mm-hmm. this. Happen. Would you, recommend working with a practitioner to start? Are there things that man can do on his own? And then what kind of timeline are we talking about? Cause I find it encouraging, you know, it, I think it can take less time than folks think that it might need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, the real kind of answer to the question that you're asking, Melanie, as far as timeline, it really comes down to, 
how willing is the client to really opening up to honoring and feeling the emotions that were too overwhelming to feel and accept during the traumatic incident. So, you know, what creates armor in the body is really unintegrated and unprocessed emotions. And so, you know, I mean, even more so than the severity of the trauma, it really comes down to, well, how ready is the client to honor and be with those emotions? And, you know, a lot of these somatic um, modalities will invite a loosening up of the, you know, tense musculature or, or bring up the emotions. And then it's really up to the client to courageously, you know, knowing that they're now in a safe space, they're an adult, they're resourced, they're supported, they're, they're not three years old, you know, with, with an uncle molesting them, um, feel into whatever grief, whatever anger, whatever sadness, like all of that. And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's really the kind of, um, uh, you know, the big deciding factor as far as the timeline. So, you know, I have some clients who come in and they've really, you know, uh, you know, taken responsibility for their emotions and they come in ready to, and then they, they, you know, they really touch into that, that those core emotions, and then it leaves the body. Whereas others will kind of, you know, are not so ready, but their mind keeps pushing them to show up. And, and, you know, those tend to be more extended kind of series of sessions. Yeah. I love what you're saying here. Cause what I'm hearing is how willing are you to feel the feelings? Exactly. That's really the difference, but that's really going to be inform how long it takes. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. I receive somatic therapy weekly and the modality mm-hmm. I do is network spinal analysis. Mm. And network spinal is a form of chiropractic. I'm I'm laughing because it's it's performed in community. So you, there are six tables in the room, and there are folks on all the tables, or let's say three tables, and the practitioner is moving from person to person, working on each person. Mm. A lot of the point of network is to allow the body to express whatever it's holding on to. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that's rage, and sometimes that's grief. Those are the I would say the big two, and I think that. Mm-hmm. Yes, for a lot of your clients, the same. A lot of grief. Yep. yep. Lead to rage. Rage will often lead to grief. There's sort of a you can mm-hmm. think of symbol. They're going in and out, and it's so funny to me because I'll see people that you can see that there's something coming up, and then they're tamping it down. Mm-hmm. And, and in my head, I'm sort of like, but isn't that what you're paying for? <laughs> like, totally, totally. That's the whole point of it. Yeah help your body express, but they, they're so reluctant to mm-hmm. growl or cry or mm-hmm. scream, or they've been shamed in the past for emoting mm-hmm. and expressing. And it's so ingrained in them to repress that they're, they're autumn. It's like, if you were attacked every time you sneezed, you would learn to repress your sneeze. So the sneeze totally. would you push it down through your through your nose or whatever it was, and you would never be expressing it. And it's almost like an unlearning of how willing are you to mm-hmm. actually feel, feel the rage, feel. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just wanted to slow that down because I would imagine, you know, you mentioned your client where I think this was the client where you, she had you sit in the corner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She just burst into tears. 
Mm-hmm. It was like you sat in the corner. You actually did what her body said it needed. Mm-hmm. She was honored in that moment. To your point, she was seen and heard, and and held, and her body just released. Right, just yeah. te- right, streaming down her face. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to you know the clients that do get the quickest results sound like the clients that are willing to feel the feels. Mm-hmm. How often does that become grief or rage and and how how much are people able to access that? Sure. So um people are able to access that despite their um cognitive mind often because um there are certain points physiologically like in, in, within the anatomy that that are known to hold certain emotions for example um so in sexological body work uh, you know there's uh, a whole ser- a whole range of of trauma informed practices that we facilitate and one is called genital mapping which is a um an anatomy education of the erogenous uh, zones of the anatomy but it's somatic so you actually feel um how empowering it is to know what the different parts of your anatomy feel like. Well, um, you know, the male prostate and the fem- what's called the female prostate in medical books, which is uh, commonly co- uh, referred to as the G spot is an area of condensed crystalline tissue that is known to hold repressed emotions and unresolved trauma. So these are areas that are kind of, you know, I mean, whether your cognitive mind is ready or not, it can touch into um, unintegrated trauma. The obturator internus muscle, it's one of the largest muscles in the pelvic bowl. Um, It's known in certain uh, uh, sexological bodywork trainings to hold shame, sexual shame. So when that, the OI, the operator internus is massaged, oftentimes it will release whatever shame uh, uh, related um, experiences or associations. And, you know, a somatic practitioner will often um, invite a, um, what's called somatic recall. So I might be palpating a client in an area where I can, I can, it's, it shouldn't be painful, but I can tell by their breath and their, their facial reaction that there's some discomfort. Then I will just simply ask, is there any memory or an image that's coming to you? And oftentimes there's some, some image, you know, it could be, you know, when, when they were seven and, and, and their gardener pulled them behind a bush, you know, but just like the, it's the pain and the discomfort in the tissues that are holding these memories. And so by eliciting and identifying by, by the body and the psyche making sense of what experience that discomfort is, is holding, it can invite a feeling of what of that of, of of that experience and by feeling it or releasing it from the body and then sure enough that same area will no longer be holding that discomfort or pain or oftentimes numbness so uh in answer to your question i mean certainly the safer the client's body feels the more access they have and this is why it's so important that the nervous system feel safe because it will affect how oxygenated their blood is, which increases tissue sensitivity. You know, it will affect how hypervigilant they are. Are they in their mind or in their bodies? If they're in their mind, they're not going to feel much in their bodies. Um, so, you know, it's why I always start with nervous system uh, 
down regulation, but then to really know what areas of the body tend to hold certain unintegrated emotions. For example, um, it's believed that trauma events that occur before age four or five are often held around the rectum or anus, regardless of gender. Um, for females, usually after nine or 10, a lot of those traumatic experiences are held somewhere in the vaginal canal. Um, and then if they occur more as an adult, then for a woman, it's more around the cervix. Um, and there's, there's probably correlations with the male body, with, with, with the prostate, the, the anus, uh, as opposed to being held around the pelvic bowl. So, so knowing kind of like where some of these issues, these issues are held in the tissues can be very helpful. Yeah, it's, I think, um, again, it can feel, I think, intimidating for folks that aren't sort of ready to go there. And what's encouraging in what you're describing is that it is very practical. It's like you said, you know, your issues are in your tissues. And when you go there and you do the thing, it's released. Mm -hmm. because It's not there anymore. It's not, it's just, it's like when you see animals in the wild that are hunted, gazelles, let's say gazelles, and they, they don't die, right? They're not, they're not, uh, they don't go down. <laughs> These are the gazelles that survive. You'll see them spontaneously shake their entire body after the trauma of being chased. Their life was in danger. They will shake for, I mean, up to three minutes sometimes, their entire bodies. And if you just imagine the tension that's released through that and the adrenaline as well, they just kind of continue on their way after that. And human beings... The, you know, there was a story of um, the the man who came up with TRE mm-hmm. driving was working with war torn in war torn countries, mm-hmm. Lebanon, and he would see that in the bunkers. They would bring all the kids and the animals, pets and everything into the bunkers. And this would happen with the very young children and animals is they would spontaneously shake mm-hmm. after the trauma. Adults didn't do that. Adults sort of held the tension in their bodies. They held the tension in their tissues mm-hmm. to your point. And, you know, what you're describing is essentially massage. That's mm-hmm. what is mindful. You know, what did you say? Intentional touch mm-hmm. with conditional love. Presence. Yeah. Unconditional presence. You know, the body knows how to do it. I guess that's mm-hmm. what's so incredible to me is what you're describing. It's not like the client has to try to do something. It's not like you have to try to do something. It's the body wants to release tension. It wants to feel better, Mm -hmm. but it must feel safe in order Mm -hmm. for that to occur. The prerequisite is safety and trust. If it doesn't feel safe and trusting, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. Happen. But absolutely is there, then, Mm -hmm. you know, to your point, sort of mindful massage of certain areas of the body, which is in my opinion, why it's so valuable to work with a practitioner like you, who knows what the touch points are, who's trained in this and who's worked with hundreds. I mean, I don't know how many folks you've worked with, but it's a lot mm-hmm. of people and you've seen the results, you've seen the the movement, you've seen the, the release. Um, and I would, you know, just 
slow that down. What you said of, you know, you're, you're, you're massaging a client and you can feel that there's tension or there's, there's something, Mm -hmm. you know, inviting that connection to, is anything coming up for you? Are you getting any images Mm-hmm. helps connect the body, the body and the mind. Cause especially to your point, you know, the psyche working together, ultimately we want a healthy body mind where we're in sync. Mm-hmm. A lot of us, there is a disconnect right now between the body and the mind. And the mind is trying to kind of maybe force things or do things or uh, like, let's just get through it. And mm-hmm. the body's like, Whoa, slow down. Like I'm sad. I'm sad right now. I'm angry. I'm just like, that's where the body wants to be. And the mind is busy trying to sort of make things better or make things different or, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, there's a connection piece between honoring what the body is telling us and actually being with it rather than trying to make it different. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really um, huge and and important points to underscore. Um, And I think this is partly why so many, you know, men don't report um uh sexual abuse or trauma because i think i think a lot of men are are so kind of like it's not efficient it's not um uh it's not productive to get emotional i just got to keep doing my job and um you know unfortunately it means that they're going to carry they're going to keep this embodied trauma unresolved and it's going to continue to show up in and get in the way of real intimacy. Um, and to your point, Melanie, like, I mean, you know, safety is, is the key. I, I believe that the body knows how to heal it safe when heal itself when there is unconditional safety present. And this goes to a point you brought up earlier about how a lot of men can be in relationships. And when it gets you know, too intimate that they'll sabotage, self-sabotage. Well, you know, the irony is, is a lot of times it's when they get into an emotionally safe relationship that the remnants of this trauma will start to come up to be resolved because there is safety and resource. And, and, you know, the, the irony is, is, you know, it's the safety that, that allows the, those traumatic memories to come to the surface. I think what what happens a lot is people will be in very casual relationship to casual relationship where there's no vulnerability because they don't want to go near, you know, the emotions and the feelings that are associated with that past trauma. Yeah. So this is a great point. So let's say that a man, let's just say a man is in a relationship and realizing that, yeah, okay, there's some, there's some trauma I haven't dealt with and it is impacting my sexual relationship. Is there, you know, would you recommend working with a practitioner to start or is there anything that you would recommend that man do to help himself get into his body or, you know, what, what would you recommend? Mm. Well, I would say, um, you know, to move as slow and as gradual as feels safe. And oftentimes that 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 first step is an emotional kind of understanding and cognitive recognition of of the trauma, and so a lot of times that that may start with um, uh, like a cognitive therapist, like a talk based therapist, or like a somatic experiencing therapist that is somewhat touch based, but but helping the client to really gradually have an emotional and cognitive understanding. Um, and then, 
you know, when the client is ready for somatic touch-based therapy, then to seek out, I mean, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking that there's so few, um, uh, you know, that touch-based therapeutic modalities are still so rare, but, you know, in the States, we do have neuroeffective touch. We do have somatic experiencing. There are certified sexological body workers. Um, and, you know, to get professional help because people who are trained and um, experienced will know so much more, will be able to read the signs and understand your symptoms so much easier than, you know, you know than, than trying to figure it out on your own. But getting the support, the professional support um, from someone who's, who's trauma-informed would be a good, a good thing. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. I, when I was working with survivors of sexual abuse on the East Coast, the feedback I got a lot was I worked with a talk therapist and that was great. And then I plateaued mm-hmm. in, in my work. I, I, I wasn't moving forward anymore and I was still having nightmares or I was yeah. still all tied up, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, um, ADHD, uh, like the, the manifestations of a traumatized body are, are many and varied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, a lot of them are expressed through the body. And I found, you know, yeah, just a lot of tightness or distractibility, not being able to focus, um, sleep problems. A lot mm-hmm. of my had sleep problems, right? So the physical symptoms weren't necessarily getting better, but to your point, they had, they had reached a plateau where they were able to they had told their story and had it held by someone with love. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what you're getting at in terms of the cognitive mm-hmm. part of, okay, yes, this happened to me. This was traumatic and it happened to me. I am here now. I have told someone this happened to me and they didn't reject me or shame me or tell mm-hmm. me it was my fault or, you know, make me wrong. They held it with love. That's a huge breakthrough. That's a big, that's a big it deal. Is. That step. is a big deal. And, and then what I noticed was what many of them were telling me was then I got acupuncture. Then I got that spinal analysis. Then I got some kind of physical modality with a trained professional. And that was where my next breakthrough happened. So anorgasmia, for example, the inability to orgasm. Mm-hmm. I tell a woman who was an abuse survivor. She couldn't orgasm until she was 27 and she got acupuncture and that helped open up, open up her channels. So mm. again, just to sort of emphasize the, the physical, body-based practices are essential in my they are essential. Yeah. In, in cases with where we're working with trauma. And what I like about what you just said is maybe that's not the very first step for you. Mm-hmm. If you, if you are someone who has experienced trauma or unwanted touch of some kind, maybe the first step is telling a really trusted, trustworthy friend or coach or, um, talk therapist. If you mm-hmm. even have a talk therapist, you know, I've worked with clients where I've worked with them of upwards of a year before they've disclosed sexual trauma mm-hmm. because it's so vulnerable. It is and so vulnerable. Know what's going to happen and they don't know if I can handle it and they're not sure. Their body is like, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. want to be treated like a freak. I don't want to be seen as unlovable after this. I don't want, you know, all of the sort of beliefs that can go along with it. Um and I'm always honored when someone tells me I'm always 
so uh, floored by their bravery to your point of just like mm-hmm. fucking hard to do. It is not easy to tell mm-hmm. your story. And I think that there's such beauty and power in just that step being held and then a sort of guidance to the next step, which mm-hmm. is why we're doing this episode. Because I really want people to know what's available and what's out there. You know, you mentioned neuroaffective touch. Did I get that name right? Yeah. Yeah. You got it right. Um, which I believe, can you just briefly walk us through what is legal in which state? Because my understanding is sexological body work is still solely legal in California, but I think mm-hmm. that TRE, for example, is legal all over somatic experience. Yep. Um, and then neuroaffective touch, is that also available? Yeah. Yeah. Neuroaffective touch, somatic experiencing, TRE, those are all, um, if you Google and find the websites, you'll find practitioner directories for all three of those modalities. Um, Sexological body work, there are trainings. I think there's like 13 or 15 of them all over the world now. Um, Canada, you know, Hawaii, Los Angeles. Um, But the legality of sexological body work is still like undefined essentially. Um, uh, yeah, there, it's still an undefined, uh, as far as it's kind of a gray area. Um, but like those other, uh, therapeutic modalities are all legal and you'll probably find practitioners somewhere within your vicinity. That's great. And, and how much of these can also be done virtually because I know a lot of my clients are in smaller towns or remote yeah. Yeah, well, somatic experiencing and neuro effect. I mean, I think honestly, during the pandemic, like I assist uh, Dr. Aileen Lapierre in her neuroaffective touch trainings, and you know, I assisted her live ones, and now I'm assisting her virtual one in Australia, and it's really surprising how much of it actually translates, and there is actually a lot of benefits to the virtual. Um, facilitated uh, uh, sessions. So um, all of those are TRE I've done, you know, online as well. So they actually translate pretty well virtually. Um, Sexological body work, it depends on what kind of coaching, you know, it involves like people go to uh, somatic sex educators, for example, to start developing a self-pleasure practice or, um, you know, uh, um, understanding like, you know, their their erogenous erogenous anatomy um i mean all of that can be guided virtually as well obviously the hands-on work can't be done virtually but a lot of it can translate that's beautiful and if um people are interested in your work where can they find you Sure. So um for my work you can go to somaticsexualwholeness.com um it's just those three words somaticsexualwholeness.com and um, there's a there's a contact page uh, that they can fill out if they want to reach out to me. Great. And um, I, I before we wrap, I just do want to briefly ask you about folks that are in a relationship mm-hmm. with a sexual trauma survivor. You know, how do you recommend? Because that's a tough that can be a tough position to be mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. A lot of people. I'm thinking of my men in particular. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, I don't want my woman to do anything she's not comfortable with, mm-hmm. and our sex life is not good. Mm-hmm. And this is part of why this is part of why unprocessed trauma is part of why. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend that you bring it up with her in a safe way? Um, 
if you have any recommendations around that and have you worked with couples where one is a survivor and they're trying to understand how to do sex better? Yeah, it's very, very delicate. I mean, you know, the, the best thing is, you know, obviously the more she feels emotionally supported and safe, um, the easier it will for any past trauma to start coming to the surface to be addressed. Um, it can, it can be very sensitive and I do not advise trying to, you know, play psychologist to your partner. Um, you know, uh, sometimes going to like group events where there's like a group discussion around sexual abuse could be helpful because then you experience it together and it's not one person telling the other. Um, you know, some I've I've known some people to kind of have a like seeing kind of a um, um, like a there's a movie called Bliss. It's it, it's a nineteen ninety seven film um, with uh, Terrence Stamp in it, and it's really the journey of exactly what you're asking. It's a couple that goes through a sexual healing process together, and I was really impressed with the themes that they addressed. But you know, not to ambush your partner and say, "Hey, let's see this movie," you know, but to discuss you know the themes of the film and to see if 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 you know, both of you want to uh, carve out some time because there may be emotions that come as a result of seeing something like that. You may have to stop, pause and come back to it, but um, have the themes introduced not by one or the other, but by some outer source, outer authority um, is, is always, you know, is usually a better, better way to go. Yeah, that's great. And also, um, just to know that you're, you can be as supportive as you can be. And ultimately it is an autonomous choice to address trauma and any, any person. And that person needs to make that choice for themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't rush that process for anyone. Yes. You can't rush it. And some people, they're not going to want to do it. (laughs) They're just exactly, exactly. Want to do it. And you know, that's, that can be a boundary for some people. And that's important to know in a, in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you don't have to watch bliss together. You can just listen to this podcast together. <laughs> Perfect. Right. Cause the themes are coming up and you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good way to kind of open up the conversation. And then as we start to wrap, I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit to what's on the other side? What have you seen in clients who have been able to come in and release trauma and what, what happens in their sex and love lives? Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many wonderful stories. Um, you know, I mean, there, you know, for example, I've had like, I kind of, it's a wide range of clients I work with from, from, you know, those who've been prostituted as children, whose memories are just coming back all the way over to, you know, Tantra teachers who, who want to experience, you know, deeper and fuller orgasms. Um, I'll give one, I'll give a few examples. There's one client I had who was circumcised, uh, as a young, young girl, um, in a, in, in, in an African country, she had no sensation in her genitalia. Um, and within five sessions, she's having full body vaginal orgasms. Um, but again, it was, and this was interesting because you would think, oh my God, she had a clitoris and inner labia mutilated. 
But it was her beloved grandmother who took her, unbeknownst to her, to this, you know, uh, you know, barbaric event. And it, 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 she had to process that sense of betrayal emotionally. Once she let herself feel the grief of that betrayal, uh, that's when the sensations returned. So it just really, you know, goes to the point that the tissues are holding unprocessed emotions. And once we release that, then there's going to be blood, chi, sensation flow again. Um, so there's so many stories like that, whether it's letting go of cultural shame, which is a big one, in, uh, you know, among certain cultures, to, um, you know, unfortunately, violation is a big one. But I got to tell you, Melanie, so much is just, you know, people not really ever having learned the capacity of their erogenous anatomy. And once they let their bodies identify and give voice to what it is their body actually wants and likes and feel empowered to do that, then the body's like, oh, I can be safe advocating what I want. And then it's kind of like off to the races. I love that last part, especially for couples, because I would imagine that's transformative when one or both members can say like, I like to be touched this way. And then mm. it's like, Oh, that's really working. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The there's a lot, there's lots of places to go from there versus I'm shut down. I'm kind of numb. I'm pretty checked out. Sometimes I dissociate, you know, sex from that place. Sometimes in my sex research, um, men will say she was just a starfish. It's just mm. like that's a starfish. And to me, I'm mm -hmm. like, well, there's probably trauma there and yeah. there, neither person might be, one person might not even be aware of it yet. Totally. Totally. Always, you know, obvious. And I just want to throw this in there too, is, you know, you mentioned repression and religious re repression, religious mm -hmm. beliefs around sexuality can be, it can be very traumatic mm -hmm. for children as they're growing up and their sexuality is being boxed in or they're told they're wrong for mm -hmm. even thoughts right? Their fantasies, their thoughts are wrong. That's very confusing for young nervous. It's very confusing. Yeah. And you know, there's some where it's like, oh my God, if I self-pleasure, I'm going to hell. It's like, I mean, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's like the ultimate. It's like, I mean, shame is bad enough, but going to hell, the fear of that, my gosh. And I'm really shocked to hear that, you know, like certain, um, it means very, very strong in a lot of religious cultures. Yes. And also uh, something we should put in this discussion that people should know is many children in chaotic households will self-pleasure at a very young age. Mm -hmm. A reaction to a chaotic household, meaning there's an abusive alcoholic in the household, or there's a depressed mom who's kind of checked out and just not really there, mm -hmm. uh, can, be chaotic, can feel chaotic and just not, not nourishing for the, for the child. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, a rageaholic, slamming of doors, parents fighting, chaotic households, often children, because we're little mammals, we're little mammals just trying to get by. Self-pleasuring masturbation can come online really young. Absolutely. It's a, it's a way of feeling better. And then if you add the fucking shame on top of that, it's like this poor little person is mm -hmm. just trying to, to be loved and to just get by and to feel okay in themselves. And it's like mm -hmm. that's actually really normal. So I don't know if I know I have a friend for whom that's true, but I just wanted to throw that in this conversation that to let go of any shame around that, because for a lot of folks, it's you're just trying to to survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So um, thank you for this conversation. I think that, um, yeah, I think we've touched on a lot of things and for any listeners, if anything's coming up or you want more follow-up or anything, you can get me at dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. And Rahi's, your site again is somatic sexual wholeness.com.